Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I had a revelation this morning, ladies and gentlemen. I got up this morning, and I'm recording this on Wednesday, a couple days before Christmas. I know when you're listening to this, it might be just after Christmas. But I got up this morning because I wanted to send out an email to our email subscribers. I send out an email once a week. It normally has a video, a Q&A video from the college campus or a church, because as you know, we record everything we do when we're at a church or a college campus, and then we take the Q&A and we put them on our YouTube channel. Most people will not look at a 40-minute video, but they will look at a four-minute Q&A video. And so I wanted to send one of these videos out to our subscribers. And by the way, you want to get one email from us a, a, a week, just go to crossexamine.org and uh, I think it's subscribe. Just click on subscribe. We don't share your email address with anyone else. Uh, but we do send you a video, you know, just one email a week. And so I woke up, I was trying to figure out a video that uh, a, a video of a student asking a question related to Christmas and the central focus of Christianity. What's the central focus of Christianity? The fact that Jesus came to earth, that's why we celebrate Christmas, to give himself as a ransom to save us from our sins. And he rose from the dead to prove it. And that by trusting in him, we are saved by grace, not works. So. He gave himself as a ransom, Mark 10, 45. He rose from the dead, as many eyewitnesses saw, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We're saved by grace, not works. That's all over the scriptures, but one passage you can go to is, of course, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Now, it struck me that out, over, that out of over, say, 800 Q&A videos on our YouTube channel, very few of them have students challenging any of the essentials of Christianity. In other words, after they see the evidence, you know, we, when we get to Q&A, we've already gone through the evidence that Christianity is true. We've covered, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And did Jesus rise from the dead? Is the New Testament reliable enough to tell us whether Jesus rose from the dead or not? Because if those four questions are answered, yes, if the evidence shows that truth exists, that God exists, that miracles are possible, and that Jesus rose from the dead, game over, Christianity is true. So after we present all this evidence, we take Q&A. And after they see the evidence, they rarely express skepticism about God's existence or the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, they are more concerned about the theological and moral implications that will affect them if Christianity is true. In other words, they don't, they, they rarely say, well, your evidence for God isn't good. Every once in a while you get a question, but very rarely. Or the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, no, nope, not good. Instead, they're more concerned about how it would affect them if Christianity was true. 
and and I've noticed they really don't like the fact that God allows evil, that he judges people, particularly in the Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of judgment in there. That not all sexual behaviors are approved, or at least the ones they want to engage in. That inequality in the world exists. And they also don't like the fact that God doesn't explain himself completely to us. You know, why doesn't God do this? Or why doesn't God do that? Well, it's worth noting, ladies and gentlemen, that as I reflected on this, it's worth noting that God never promised, number one, there would be no evil in the world. In fact, Christianity and Christmas would would be unnecessary if there were no evil in the world. Defeating evil is exactly why Jesus came. Do you realize the Christian story is the solution to the problem of evil? There would be no reason for God to come and save us if we were perfect, if, if there wasn't moral evil. There would be no reason for God to come to save us if we weren't sinners. There would be no reason for God to come and save us if we didn't get sick and die. But the reason he came to save us is precisely because we're sinners, precisely because the world has fallen, precisely because we can't fix evil ourselves, precisely because we do get sick and die. In fact, if you look at the, at the miracles of Jesus, and we've talked about this before, let me just reiterate it. When you look at the miracles of Jesus, they're not random miracles. They're in four basic categories. First of all, he's sinless. Why? Because one of our problems is sin. Second of all, he can heal the sick. Why? Because one of the problems we have is sickness. Third of all, he, can, he has power over nature. He can walk on water, turn water into wine, calm the storm. Why? Because those things, nature itself, can hurt us. And fourthly, he rises from the dead and he raises other people from the dead. Why? Because that's another one of our problems. In our fallen world, we die. In other words, Jesus comes and demonstrates he's the Messiah, the Savior, by, by solving the four problems we have in this space-time continuum. Sin, sickness, nature, and death. So he's saying, look, I'm the Messiah. I can correct all these problems. If those problems didn't exist, there would be no need for a savior. So it's odd when, well, it's not odd. I shouldn't say that. I mean, everyone has questions, you know, if God, why evil? But no one would be asking the question, if God, why evil? Unless this was a fallen world. And Jesus comes and takes evil upon himself in order to fix that problem. And yet we're kind of shocked when we see that evil happens in the world. And quite frequently we're behind it. But Christianity is actually the solution to that. God never promised there wouldn't be evil in the world. He promised there would be. You will have trouble in this world, but take heart of overcome the world. Paul said anyone who is a faithful follower of Christ will be persecuted. You will have trouble in this world. But Christianity is the solution, the ultimate solution to that. Also, God never promised to not judge sinners. In fact, if he's a true God, he would judge sinners. He does that throughout the Bible. He judges sinners. And if he's just, he must. In fact, that's why Jesus is the ransom, right? He provides the ransom. He is the only one who can pay off our debt of sin because he's sinless. So he takes our sin upon himself, our punishment upon himself. 
And therefore, God remains just, and he's the justifier, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, one of the key verses in the entire Bible. God is just and the justifier. By the way, that's, the why, that's why Jesus is the only way. He's the only way a, an infinitely just God can allow unjust people like you and me to go unpunished. He punishes himself in our place. He's the ransom. And he judges sinners. If he didn't judge sinners, he wouldn't be just. He has to judge sinners, just like a, a, a judge in a, in, a, in a courtroom. If he is going to be a just judge, he has to just, or he has to, he has to punish sinners. He has to punish people that, break the, that have broken the law. If not, he's not just. Also, God never promised that you can do whatever you want sexually. And he shouldn't. Why? Sex is one of the most powerful activities in which human beings engage. So it's one of the most powerful, meaning it's one of the most beautiful, but it's also therefore the most, one of the most dangerous as well. Sex is sacred because people are sacred. And if you look at so many of our problems, they're related to sex, abortion, or killing people. It's related to sex. The sex trade, obviously related to sex. Pornography, obviously related to sex not only changes your brain chemistry, but if you're viewing pornography, you're partially responsible for a young girl in your town being abducted yesterday and sold into the sex industry. Because if there were no demand, there would be no supply. And if you're part of the demand, you're actually causing part of the supply. More on this when we come back. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. Blessings this Christmas back in two. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're talking about the fact that so many of the questions I get and other apologists get from young people and even older people, they do not actually strike at the heart of Christianity. And and I've just noticed this as I look at our more than 800 Q&A videos on our YouTube channel, the Cross-Examine YouTube channel. That people are asking questions related to, okay, why is there evil in the world? Why does God judge sinners? Uh, is the sin even exist? Uh, what, why, why can't we do whatever we want to do sexually? How come everybody isn't equal? Why does God explain everything he does? These are all questions that even if you don't get adequate answers for, would not mean Christianity was false. Let me go back to the issues that we were talking about just before the break. We were talking about the issue of of a lot of people, young people particularly, are hung up on Christianity because Christianity has certain moral boundaries, and many of those moral boundaries are related to sex. And we were pointing out that sex is very powerful, which means it's very beautiful on one hand, but it could also be very dangerous on another. Sex is like fire. You put fire. You you put fire in your fireplace as you might do this Christmas. It's wonderful. It'll warm you. You but you get it anywhere else in your house, it will burn your house down. Maybe not immediately, but over the long term, it will. And those of us who are a little bit older realize this because when you're young, you don't realize the power that sex can have to alter your life and someone else's life one way or another. 
And by the way, if you're shacking up with somebody right now, you're a Christian, you know what you're saying to that person? You know, you're good enough to use, but you're not good enough to commit to. Sorry, that's the truth. Anyway, people are also wondering, why shouldn't everyone have the same opportunities or resources in life? When in reality, the reason that isn't the case is because A, the world has fallen, and B, God is just in the sense that to whom much is given, much will be required. And if you're listening to my voice, you probably have a lot anyway. You've probably been given much. I'm not saying I'm giving you much. I'm just saying that you're living in a place where you have access to podcasts or radio programs. Most of the world, well, at least a good plurality of the world probably doesn't even have the access to that. They don't have access to the kind of resources we have. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. God is just. He's not going to judge people who have different uh, opportunities or different resources in life, the same. To whom much is given, much will be required. People are also uh, seem to be upset because God doesn't explain everything he does. You know, why did God do this? Or why didn't God do that? Why doesn't God reveal himself more? Why did God do X, Y, or Z that we read in the scriptures when it's not explained? Well, look, since we're limited and in time, we don't have the capacity to comprehend it all. In fact, when you think about the trillions of events that are affected by something you do every day into the future, we wouldn't even have the capacity to trace the ripple effect that occurs when you do something into the future. There's, there's no way of tracking that. And if you could track it, such knowledge would often negatively affect your behavior or my behavior. For example, if you knew that if God were to explain why such and such a thing happened in your life right now, that say something happening now, something maybe tragic happening now would ripple forward into the future to maybe cause you to become closer to Christ or other people to become closer to Christ, or maybe it would contribute to a great evangelist rising up 500 years from now who saves millions of people because some tragedy occurs today. If he were to explain all that to you, number one, how much would that really ease your pain? Probably not much. But number two, it might alter your behavior now and prevent you from growing in the way that God intended you to grow if you hadn't known that was the purpose of it. In other words, such knowledge might negatively affect our behavior. And so God never promised there would be no evil in the world. God never promised he wouldn't judge sinners. In fact, if he's a just God, he has to. God never promised you could do whatever you want sexually. And if he did, he wouldn't be a loving God. Because as I said, sex is very powerful and can not only obviously help people, but hurt them dramatically. Number four, he never promised everyone would have equal opportunities or resources, but he would judge people fairly based on what they have been given. And also, he never promised to explain everything. And if he could, or if he did, we wouldn't even understand it, and it might negatively affect our behavior. So the key point of all this, from what I've said to this point, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Even if you don't like or agree with any of, ans of any of the answers to these questions about evil, about judging, about sex, about inequality, about why God doesn't explain certain things, 
even if you don't like the answers to those questions, Christianity is still true. God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, regardless of any moral questions we might have related to evil, judgment, sex, equality, and the like. In fact, none of those moral objections would even make sense unless God existed. Because God's nature is the only standard by which objective moral judgments can be made. Without God, all moral issues are just a matter of human opinion and preference. So we wouldn't even be talking about evil. We wouldn't even be talking about judgment. We wouldn't even be talking about the morality or morality of sex, certain kind of sexual activity. We wouldn't even be talking about inequality or resources. We wouldn't even be talking about any of those things from an objective point of view anyway, unless God existed, because God is the standard by which we by which moral judgments are either really true or really false, really good or really bad. If we all just have our own personal standard of morality, then that's not an objective standard. That's just a subjective preference. And all of these objections we might have to Christianity or to God or the Bible would evaporate. This is why I say people have to steal from God to argue against him. That's the, the subject of the book, Stealing from God. They don't just steal a moral standard. They steal many other things. And I don't have time to get into the book right now, but that's what it's all about. People are stealing from God to argue against him. So people have objections and questions, and those are all good. And we try and provide answers to them. But even if you don't like the answers, you have not disproven Christianity. Even if you don't like the answers, God still exists and Jesus rose from the dead. And if those two things are true, Christianity is true. And by the way, the reason we study Christmas or study Christmas, the reason we celebrate Christmas, we can study it too. The reason we celebrate Christmas is because of Easter. If Jesus never rose from the dead, we probably never would have heard of him. Everything centers around the resurrection. Unless Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity and Christmas itself would be meaningless. It probably wouldn't exist. So I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about the fact that, well, not just that Jesus rose from the dead. I really want to zero in on, did Jesus really claim to be God? In fact, I was at the University of Maryland. This had to be maybe almost 15 years ago. And I'd gone through the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation. And after all the Q&A, a bunch of atheists hung around afterwards just to talk. So we were talking and this one atheist young man going to University of Maryland was very skeptical of the New Testament. But he was saying things about the New Testament that belied the fact that he probably had never read it. And so I said to him, I said, have you ever read the New Testament? Well, he just blushed and had to admit he hadn't. And I said to him, look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your history is, what your background is, what religion you came from or non-religion you came from. Jesus of Nazareth is inarguably the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. If you're going to call yourself a pursuer of truth. You have to at least read what he allegedly said and did. I mean, you might read it and go, it's bunk. I don't believe it's happened. I don't think it's true. Well, fine, but you have to at least read it. 
And you should investigate. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter seven. Anybody's pursuing God will figure out who I am, who Jesus is. He's the center of human history. You're not going to look into him. I had somebody at a recent church event we did said, oh, I love your book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But, you know, is there any way you could put that into like a Cliff Notes format so I can hand it to other people? I mean, sure, you could summarize some of this. We summarize it when we do the presentation, right? We do the presentation in about 90 minutes. You know, we're obviously, we're not covering everything in a 448-page book in 90 minutes. But kind of underneath the question is sort of an implied laziness in our culture. We want everything easy. We want everything in a two-minute or three-minute video. Can't you just explain it in an Instagram post? Couldn't it be a TikTok video? Couldn't you just communicate it that way? I'm sorry, but there ain't no free lunch. And if God exists, and he does, his existence is the most important fact to human beings. And yet many of us don't even want to investigate it. We're too lazy for that. We'll spend nine hours on a Netflix binge, but we can't spend nine hours reading a book. That would take too much work. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If it is false, it is of no importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let me say that again. Lewis, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If it is, if it is false, it is of no importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Look, if God exists and Jesus is God and he rose from the dead and our eternal destiny, everyone's eternal destiny is predicated on how we respond to what he said and did, then it is of infinite importance. It can't be just moderately important or of no importance. Yet many of us treat it like it's eh, maybe moderately important or it's really of no importance. I got better things to do. And many of the questions that I get are, are questions that maybe touch on the implications of Christianity, but they do not address the central facts or the central tenets of Christianity, which, by the way, we're going to talk about in a new course that starts 1121. Uh, it's called the Essentials of Christianity course. I'll be your instructor. In fact, uh, if you sign up for the premium version, I'll be online with you on Zoom for live Q&A on seven occasions. But you need to sign up for that quickly. It makes a great gift, by the way. You need to sign up for it quickly because we fill up the session. We don't have too many people, so everybody can participate in the Q&A. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. I'm back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamine.org. 
Here's just a few of the things, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about and investigate in the Essentials of Christianity course. The official name of it is Life's Compass, Jesus, You, and the Essentials of the Faith. We're going to cover questions like, what is the Bible all about? How do faith and works relate? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Who is Jesus? What are the essentials of salvation? How do faith and reason relate? What is God like? Why is the resurrection so important? What is faith and why does God want it? There's many more. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. As a, Again, I'll be your instructor. If you're listening to this after January 1, you can still sign up even in the premium version because the Zooms start a little bit later. Uh, than January 1. We're just dripping the course out January 1. Uh, so check all that out. Uh, the text for the course, by the way, is Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that, you need to read it. And if you have read it, you need to read it again because it's got so many great insights in it. I go back and I reread particularly the highlights of books I've read read before because I forget what I've read. If you're, just, if you're like me, you forget, you know, and so you got to be reminded. Uh, in any event, check that course out. Hey, I want to ask you guys this question. Suppose you were to hear somebody on the radio, maybe even me, just somebody or just somebody on the radio or just a friend of yours comes up to you and he says things like this. Before Abraham was born, I am. Your sins are forgiven. I and the father are one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the bread of life. Can you or can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Pray in my name. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. If you heard somebody say those words, what would you think about them? You certainly wouldn't say, oh, that guy's just a great moral teacher. <laughs> no, you would say that guy's an egomaniac who thinks he's God. How, how could you how could you get away with saying things like this if you weren't God? You'd either be a lunatic or a liar or you'd be Lord. You've heard the trilemma, Lord, liar, lunatic. In fact, C.S. Lewis made it famous in his book, Mere Christianity, which is the subject of our, our essentials course. Check out what he said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the, the really foolish things that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, unquote. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Yeah. Look, Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He's not a legend. We have too, many, too much evidence that he actually existed and said and did these things. So what is he? Lord, liar, or lunatic. 
everyone has to answer that question. By the way, isn't it interesting that just about every religious worldview wants a piece of Jesus? They'll even modify their pre-existing worldview to import something about Jesus into their system, like the Buddhists and the Hindus that predated Christianity. They'll bring Jesus in. You know, Jesus is, a, is an avatar. Jesus is a, is a God, just like our other God. Jesus is, they, they want a piece of Jesus in there. Muslims, Islam. Jesus is in Islam. Now, it's not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible, because they don't think he's God. But they believe Jesus was virgin born. They believe Jesus was sinless. They believe Jesus will judge people at the end of time. They don't even believe that about Muhammad. <laughs> they don't even, they don't believe Muhammad was sinless. They don't believe Muhammad was virgin born. or was going to judge people at the end of time. So just about every worldview wants a piece of Jesus. Why? Something special about Jesus, isn't there? Now, the question is, is Jesus really God? I mentioned some of the things he said. Sure sounds like God to me. And if he's God, we ought to follow what he says. In fact, as you know, there's a group of uh, people out there calling themselves progressive Christians. Now, in my view, there's nothing progressive, progressive and very little Christian about them. Why? Because they are regressing away from the teachings of Jesus and they are disagreeing with Jesus. So how can you call yourself a Christian if you're disagreeing with Jesus? Just like imagine if we were with Moses on Mount Sinai, we're waiting at the bottom of the mountain. You and I we're waiting there. Moses comes down with the 10 commandments. He goes, here are the 10 commandments from Yahweh. And both of us look at those 10 commandments and we go, you know, we don't like those 10. We got our own 10. Should we call ourselves followers of Yahweh? If we're disagreeing with Yahweh's 10 commandments, of course not. We're not, we're not followers of Yahweh. We may be followers of ourselves, followers of, of the, some philosophy that we've come up with, but we're not followers of Yahweh. Yet there are people out there calling themselves Christians who are not following Jesus. They have their own commandments. And particularly, interestingly, most of these commands that they disagree with Jesus about have to do with sex and sexual immorality. In fact, I've hardly ever seen a deconstruction, so-called deconstruction, where somebody leaves Christianity, they deconstruct their faith. I've hardly ever seen one that has anything or that, that does not somehow bring up sexual behavior as a reason they left Christianity. Again, they're not even striking at the core of Christianity because they disagree with Jesus on sexual immorality. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Does that mean God doesn't exist? In fact, in order for them to say that say same sex marriage is a good thing, or there's nothing wrong with same sex behavior or transgenderism or whatever, whatever their issue is in order for them to say there's nothing wrong with it. They have to have a standard of right by, we, by even which to judge that again, they, they'd have to have a moral standard to say, well, this is good behavior. There's nothing wrong with this. And you're evil. If you're against it, you bigot, you homophobe, you transphobe, whatever they're going to say. Right. They have to have a standard. Where are they getting that standard from? You can go back last week to our podcast with Neil Shenvey, who is an expert on critical theory to see they don't even they don't even think about a standard. 
They're just assuming a standard. They're actually stealing a standard again from God and modifying that standard and trying to impose it on everybody else, which is exactly what they say that nobody should do. Nobody should impose their values on anybody else, yet that's exactly what they're doing. Everybody's imposing value. The question is, what are the right values? What are the true values? And I always say, look, these aren't my morals. I didn't make these things up. I didn't make up the fact that men were made for women and women were made for men. And I didn't make up the fact that abortion's wrong, that murder's wrong, that theft is wrong, that rape is wrong. I didn't make up any of these categories. I didn't make up the fact that there are men and women out there. This isn't my morality. This just happens to be the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. The one the Apostle Paul says written on our heart by God. This is derived from God's nature. So, the point here is, is that are we going to follow Jesus or are we just going to follow what our desires are? And even if these people out there who are saying that they're Christians, yet they disagree with Jesus on certain issues, they haven't defeated the truth of Christianity. God still exists. Those arguments still stand. Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence for that still stands. You just don't like, you don't like the moral implications of Christianity being true. And you might say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, contraire. Now he did it in a Jewish context, of course, claiming to be the great I am before the Pharisees there in John 8:58 he says i tell you the truth before abraham was born i am at this they picked up stones to stone him now why did they do that why did they pick up stones to stone him because he didn't put a predicate on the end of i am <laughs> i am what no he, the reason they picked up stones to stone him is because he was claiming to be yahweh cuz the what is he who's he quoting he's quoting exodus 3:14 the burning bush. You remember when God appeared to Charlton Heston and he, and Moses says to God, God, who should I tell the Israelites you are? What does God say? God says, I am. What does I am mean? I am means the self existent eternal one, the being that had no beginning, the being that would have no end, the being that just bees, the being that grounds all other being. And even if you didn't know about Christianity, you'd have to realize, as Aristotle himself realized, there has to be an unmoved mover. There has to be a being who just exists and created everything else and keeps everything moving, including all the natural laws that do what they do. There's a mind behind all this, in other words. So when Jesus claims to be the great I am and people picked up stones to stone him there, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. He's literally claiming to be equivalent with Yahweh. He couldn't have said it any more clearly in a Jewish context. Now, of course, he didn't go around saying, I'm God, I'm God all the time. If he did, he probably would have been killed a lot earlier. He had to obviously teach before he would be so overt to reveal his identity. Otherwise, he would have been taken out too soon and wouldn't have completed his mission. Uh, also, a lot of people will say, and Bart Ehrman has known, been known to say this, you know, Jesus never is really claimed to be God in, say, the synoptic gospels, like, say, Mark. It's only later in John 
that Jesus becomes God. That's not true. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, Jesus affirms he's the Messiah and the Son of Man in, John, in Mark 14, 62, when he's under oath before the high priest. And what does the high priest say? What does Caiaphas say after Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, which, by the way, was his favorite designation for himself across all four Gospels? The Son of Man is a divine figure from Daniel chapter 7. What, what, does, what does Caiaphas do when he says... I am the son of man and you will see the son of man descending or riding on the clouds. What, what does he do? He tears his robe and he says, we don't need to hear any more evidence. This is blasphemy. He knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And by the way, when we come back to the break, I'll show you in the gospel of Mark itself. It's one long story about Jesus claiming to be God, proven to be God. Come back right after this. I'm Frank Turk. Don't go anywhere. Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I'm Frank Turek. Our website's crossexamined.org. Crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. If you haven't downloaded our free app, do it, please. It's free. A lot on there. Crossexamined, two words in the App Store. And don't forget about our YouTube channel. Check that out. Our Facebook page, Crossexamined YouTube channel, Crossexamined Facebook page. A lot going on up there. We've got a Instagram. We've got uh, Twitter, of course. Just look for Frank Turek there. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about Jesus claiming to be God in the Gospel of Mark, something that some of the skeptical scholars seem to look over. <laughs> he claims to be God there. But notice in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is actually showing he's God by actually doing certain things that only God can do. And even the author of the gospel of Mark points this out. Um, it says, for example, in Mark chapter one, verse three, that John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. And in that context, the Lord means Yahweh. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh. Not the father Yahweh, but he's part of the Godhead. That's Mark 1, 3. If you go to Mark 1, 9, the father calls Jesus the beloved son. He has obviously a special relationship here with God the father. Then a little bit later in the first chapter of the gospel of Mark, evil spirits recognize Jesus and obey him. Who else do evil spirits obey other than God? The next chapter in uh, chapter two, verse five, Jesus forgives sin. Mark chapter two, verse five, he forgives sin. Who can forgive sin but God alone? In fact, if you look at the context of the passage there, uh, let me get, let me get there. Let's take a quick look at it. Oh, I'm not going to Luke. I'm going back to Mark. Go back to Mark. Sorry. I'm online with this right now. 
And I'm not going to Matthew. I'm going to Mark. Thank you very much. Mark chapter two. It says when Jesus saw their faith, first of all, he says a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Capernaum, my favorite spot in Israel, you know where Jesus stood. You're in the same spot. The synagogue is right there. Of course, it's the third century synagogue, but it's built over the one that Jesus stood in. That was just really his adopted hometown was Capernaum right there on the Sea of Galilee. We're trying to go back to Israel, by the way. It doesn't look like it's going to happen uh, in March like we wanted to, but we're, we'll get there. We'll get back there eventually. Anyway, a few days later, Jesus entered Capernaum. The people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there's no, no room left, not even outside the door. And he, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man or lowered the mat the man was lying on. You know the story. In fact, if you go there, they, we think we found Peter's house. This is probably where they lowered the man into. They lowered him through that, the roof on that house. And it said, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why is he, why is this fellow talking like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins, but God alone? Exactly. Then the next verse, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, who can think in their spirit what somebody else is thinking in their hearts? Uh, yeah, that would be God. In other words, Jesus is doing all those, all these things in the gospel of Mark, which is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel that demonstrate he's God. In fact, that's what they're saying. <laughs> the people in Capernaum are saying, this guy's claiming to be God. He's blasphemy. Then he claims to be a little bit later in the chapter, chapter two of Mark, the divine son of man. He also claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath other than the Lord himself? In the next chapter, what does he do? He, Jesus heals diseases and he drives out demons. He heals diseases and he drives out demons. Then he demonstrates the power over nature. Chapter four. Chapter four, verse 37. Let's go over there and take a look at that. These are all things that Jesus does to demonstrate that he is God. So it says here, verse 35, this is when he calms the storm that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over the other side, the other side of the lake, sea of Galilee, call it a sea, but it's really a big lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious squall came up. By the way, this is uh, common in the sea of Galilee. Squalls will come up. There'll be wind that'll come off the Mediterranean and whip down into the valley there and create a big squall, lots of high sea or high lake sea, high waves. This, is, this happens today. This is like an historical detail. Yep, this, this fits with the topography and the meteorology of the area. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and he was completely calm. And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? 
They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him? Yeah, exactly. Who is this? That's what we're asking today. Who is this person called Jesus, the most influential human being to ever walk the earth? Have you made a decision about him? Because if he is who he says he is, your eternity and my eternity is dependent on how we respond to him. So look, in the first four chapters, Mark says, John prepares the way, John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. That's Yahweh. First four chapters of Mark. Father calls Jesus, his beloved son, evil spirits recognize Jesus and obey him. Jesus forgives sins. He claims to be the divine son of man. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He heals diseases and drives out demons. He demonstrates power over nature. And then at the end of the book of Mark, he says, I am the son of man who's going to come on the clouds. And then Caiaphas tears his robes and says, we don't need to hear anything else. This is blasphemy. Who is this guy claiming to be in the earliest gospel? He's claiming to be God. Then he proves to he proves to be God. He predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection. This is really the meaning of Christmas. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if he wasn't God, yeah, and he's, he's not risen from the dead, he's just another poor Middle Eastern Jewish child born two thousand years ago and laid in a manger. He's there's no reason to celebrate his birth unless. He is the Messiah. He is God. He did rise from the dead. And that's what the evidence shows. So again, you can have all sorts of objections to Christian theology. You can have all sorts of objections to Christian ethics. You can have all sorts of objections to what God does and doesn't do, but you haven't put a dent in the essentials of the Christian faith. That there is a God. And Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, if Jesus is God, whatever he teaches is true. Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. And therefore, Jesus's teachings con are confirmed by the fact that he's God. And the apostles' teachings are confirmed by the fact that Jesus commissioned them, promised the New Testament, and poured out miracles on them so that the eyewitnesses would say, yep, these guys speak for God. Nobody else can do these things. We better heed what they say. Look, God has given us all enough evidence to know that Christianity is true. He's also withdrawn enough from us so as not to overpower our free will and to give us enough freedom to make an honest decision. And the question is, what decision have you made? This Christmas, is this just going to be another holiday where you go, oh, yeah, let's exchange some presents, eat too much food, hang out with our friends and relatives, or are we really going to tease out the implications of what Christmas is really all about? Because it's really all about this, the God of the universe entering this space time continuum to save you from your own inequity. Inequity, I should say. It's to save you from the things that you've done wrong. Because both you and me and everyone listening to us right now 
has contributed to this fallen world. And yet God has taken it upon himself to save us from the consequences of that. Have you accepted that? Why wouldn't you? It's free. You say, I don't like certain things about Christianity. Fine. I don't care if you like them or not. If it's true, it's true. In fact, I'll unpack this at a future time, but we don't like the word submit, but you know where the word submit comes from? Submission. And what does mission mean? Mission means there's a purpose, a purpose to life. And sub means you're putting yourself behind that mission. What could be better than a mission to save one another and enjoy God forever in eternity? There's no other mission. There's no superior mission. There's no eternal mission other than that. But it's up to you whether or not you're going to submit yourself to the greatest mission in the world brought to us by God when he came to earth. Your decision is of infinite importance, ladies and gentlemen. It can't be moderately important. All right, friends, great being with you. Hope you have a blessed Christmas. Don't forget about our online course starting 1121. Makes a great gift if you want to gift it to somebody. And Lord willing, I will see you here next week. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.